Uh, I'm Tavis Smiley, and I'm glad to have you all at this hour. Uh, I was waiting for some audio on that clip. Uh, there's no audio, but you can probably tell by the sound. Uh, that was back in the day, uh, and that was black exploitation. We'll talk about that in a moment in this hour. I'm glad to have you with us, by the way. Two conversations on the B side of this hour. Can a musical masterpiece born 100 years ago still speak to today's America? Laura Downs answers that question with a vibrant reinvention of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. She recolors it for 21st century America, weaving a century of immigrant voices into its iconic notes. We'll talk about this new version of Rhapsody in Blue 100 years later from Laura Downs on the backside of this hour. We commenced this hour, as you just heard that clip, talking about black exploitation and whether or not it liberated or limited black narratives. That is the that's the question this hour, this half hour. Did black exploitation liberate or limit black narratives? Film critic Obi Henderson joins us right now to dissect the electrifying power and problematic nature and legacy of black exploitation cinema in his groundbreaking book Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatra a history of black exploitation cinema. I am delighted to welcome film critic Obi Henderson to this program. Obi, how are you, sir? Hi, I'm doing great. Uh, can you hear me okay? I hear you well. Can you hear me okay? Absolutely. Uh, uh, it's an honor. Um, one slight correction. It's yes. Odie. O-D-I-E. Did I, did I say Obi? I'm sorry, Odie. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, Obi's with the four tops. Now, now, now I get it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I guess. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm a four tops fan, so if I said Obi, uh, forget me. Forgive me. Uh, O-D-I-E. Uh, O-D-I-E. Odie Henderson. My, 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 my apologies on that. So that that, yes, that 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 said, got that out of the way. I mean, trust me, I, I apologize for that because uh, with a name like Tavis, I get called out of my name all the time. So I, I, I try to be, I'm very sensitive to people's names being, uh, uh, being, uh, being correct on this program. So again, my apologies for that, Odie. Uh, that said, um, tell me a, a couple of big questions first, and we'll, we'll narrow as we move through the, through the half hour. Um, why and, and how over the years have you been drawn to this particular subject matter as a film critic? Well, I started writing about black fiction movies back in 2008 at my blog. And before that, you know, I grew up on these movies. I, I saw them as a kid and as a teenager. And so I had some history of some of my first visions of black people on the screen, on the big screen, I should say, were some of these films. So what I wanted to do when I was writing this book was to collect that information, but also to take a look back as an adult and really look back at some of these movies and see things I would not have seen as a kid and mm -hmm. also to see how they may have kind of affected me or made me think of, you know, black people, of masculinity of, of, of us, and just trying to kind of reconcile that with my childhood memories and childhood thoughts and beliefs. So, I mean, I've been watching these movies forever. Like I said, I grew up on them. Mm -hmm. There aren't very many books about black exploitation. There are a couple of really great ones. And so this is kind of a personal journey for me in addition to learning more about how they were made, whether, as you said at the top of this, mm -hmm. whether or not black people were you know, how, well, whether we benefit from them behind the scenes or were we cursed by them. Mm -hmm. and, and and what, uh, broadly speaking, what, what is your response to your own question, whether or not uh, we were cursed by them, liberated by them, um, or, or, you know, as I said earlier, were we liberated or limited by them? Well, I think it's, it's a little both. I mm -hmm. think maybe in some ways more liberated than limited simply because if you look at what was going on before these movies, the images of black people in studio system movies were bad, if not far worse. You know, we were maids, we were uh, 
Donald Bogle had the famous book, Tom's Coons, Mulattoes, Miami's, and Bucks, which kind of described what black people were in a lot of these movies back then. So looking at something like, say, Dirty Harry, where, you know, Clint Eastwood is putting his gun in the guy's face and asking if he was lucky, mm-hmm. and then looking at someone like Pam Greer, who has the gun and has the power, I think there was some liberation in seeing us on the screen, not as victims, but as heroes. On the same token, as the genre moved on and as the era moved on, a lot of these images started to become more negative because that sold more. Mm-hmm. And I think there's kind of a distinction between the two that there's, you can have both, you can have two thoughts in your head about these things. That yes, there was some uh, stereotypical elements, sometimes very bad, but also in the same token, there was a sense of power. When I was a kid, my cousins would play Pam Greer. Mm-hmm. You know, they would come out of the theater, my female cousins would be empowered by seeing Cleopatra Jones or Tamara Dobson or seeing Pam Greer. So there was something we said about that us as kids coming out and not feeling that we were discriminated against, but exactly the opposite. Yeah. So so you, you're, you're, you, what you've said now begs the obvious question, which I'll pose now and let you respond to when we come forward. Um, if these films started out, black exploitation we're talking about, if we started out with these films as empowerment, um, what, where, how did these images become more negative? Who was behind that push? Um, what, what, uh, uh, what birthed? Um, the negativity in these images, if again, to your point, you and your cousins and all the rest of us were initially empowered by these black exploitation films, why and how did it turn to the negative? We'll talk about that with Odie Henderson, film critic, discussing his new book, Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatra, a history of black exploitation cinema, right now on Tavis Smiley. From the Merc Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. <laughs> Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. More of Tavis Smiley, more of Odie Henderson, film critic, author of the book Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatra: A History of Black Exploitation Cinema. So, um, Odie, you got me, uh, you got me all uh, fascinated by when this turn happened and why this turn happened. So, these black exploitation films come out. Black folk initially are, you know, are, are empowered by these Foxy Brown and Shaft, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Somewhere along the way. Uh, these images turn more negative. Tell me about that part, as as we say. Well, uh, let me uh, before I go there. Let me just kind of mention that these movies, you know, they have exploitation in the title of the genre. So we weren't expecting something like Merchant Ivory or something so super respectable. Exploitation films have a certain level of you know uh, salaciousness, whether it's black exploitation or exploitation or Bruce exploitation. All these things that were happening simultaneously in the black exploitation era. So you would get something like, let's say, Cotton Comes to Harlem initially, which is based on Chester Hines' novel, and it's about cops in Harlem, and you get a, this giant you know, picture of Harlem, of the crooks, of the, the heroes, of church people, and so on. And then as time went on, it seemed like the more negative elements, or maybe the more criminal elements, started to take some more of a center uh, of of the, the genre. What always happens is when something underground becomes mainstream, it gets destroyed. And I think that's kind of what started to happen here is that after so many years, the movies just became, you know, true exploitation films with nothing but violence and, and sex and, and so on for no other purpose but to show this information without any kind of uh, thoughts of, you know, what was what, what messages were being presented, whether they were positive or not. And I'm not saying a movie has to have a positive message at all, mm-hmm. but something, again, like Shaft or even like um, Foxy Brown and uh, 
a coffee, they had elements. They had coffee is in any drug movie. Superfly is uh, a very complex, amoral film about a drug dealer mm -hmm. where you have to basically decide if you want to be on his side as he's basically destroying the community. So these things have thought behind them. And suddenly it just became, let's throw some violence on the screen because once something is successful, they want to make a hundred duplicates of it. Mm -hmm. And each duplicate becomes more and more corrupt. So I think that's what happened. And then at the same time, there was another element, you know, the coalition against black exploitation, which the NAACP and CORE started in August of 1972, which is what gives black exploitation its name. They were complaining. They said all they wanted was positive images of black folks like the founder uh, and so on. So some of these other movies like Amazing Grace started to be very preachy mm -hmm. and people didn't want to see them. So they, something that we would consider a positive message, quote unquote, was just boring, was a preachy message and no one wanted to go see that. So they didn't make any money. So they went back to thinking, let's just make more violent types of pictures. Mm -hmm. I think that's what happened and how it became kind of started to go down in terms of quality. And I started to contribute to the demise of the genre. Now, with that said, I love black exploitation. I didn't write a preachy book. I wrote a very raunchy, R-rated book about this genre, talking about the good and the bad about it. But I think that's kind of what happened. I don't think that's what destroyed it at the end. But I do see, as we get to something like The Candy Tangerine Man, it's about 1976, there really is no redeeming value to some of the images they're putting on the screen. Yep. Um, we use this term all the time, black exploitation, and leave it to you, uh, and who else would, uh, but Odie Henderson, uh, remind us of how that term came to be. Take me back to 1972, to the NAACP pushing back on some of these films, and that term, it's a great term. Again, it, it stuck. Uh, it has stuck all these years later. Tell me about the NAACP, their pushback, and this term, black exploitation. Well, Junius Griffin, he was the head of, I believe it was the Los Angeles chapter of the NAACP, and he came up with that name after Superfly. Now, Superfly came out in, um, in July or August of 72. <clears throat> in fact, it was such a hit, it beat The Godfather at the box office for a week. Mm. And the funny thing is that The Godfather and Superfly were always intertwined in these articles at the time because the Italians were complaining about the Godfather portraying negative images of them. And the NAACP and CORE were, <laughs> were doing the same thing. Can you imagine? Yeah. The NAACP and CORE were doing the same thing. Yeah. So Junius Griffin coined this term, Black Flirtation. <clears throat> These uh, movies had a much more negative title before that. And he said that they were corrupting kids and that they were not giving any kind of positive messages whatsoever. So they came up with this coalition, and surprisingly... It had a little bit of an effect in Hollywood. Now, it was something similar to the Hayes Code, where they had rules about the, they wanted black movies to have certain elements about them. They wanted script approval. They wanted to be able to rate a movie, like the Catholic Reason of Decency, who had uh, uh, you know, objectionable things. If you were Catholic and you went to see a movie like Baby Doll, you went to hell, mm -hmm. <laughs> according mm -hmm. to them. And the Coalition Against Blasphemation wanted to rate movies the same way, something that was morally objectionable. Um, would get a morally objectionable rating from them. So that's how the term came about, and it stuck. And Julius Griffith wound up being kicked out of the NAACP because he endorsed a movie that Anthony Quinn was going to make about a Haitian hero, and Anthony Quinn was going to do the movie in blackface. Mm. So having the NAACP head uh, endorse a movie that has blackface in it because he was being salty over... Uh, William Marshall wanted to make the same movie. William Marshall played Blackula, by the way. Um, 
that, that didn't sit well. So he got kicked out. But the coalition lasted a couple of years. And surprisingly, Hollywood was open to some of the things they were asking them to do. Mm. Um, I want to circle back one, 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 one more again, as we say, to that to that turn where these images become much more negative. The NACP gets involved. The term black exploitation um, uh, is heard for the first time. Again, it, it stuck then. It stuck all these years later. W- who or what was driving, and I'm not naive in asking this, but who or what was driving the increased negativity uh, the the stereotypes, the bad images in these black exploitation films. Was it black folk who just want to get their stuff done and they uh, are to blame for this? Or was it the industry demanding that these images of us be seen on screen? Who, who was who and what was driving that turn toward negativity in black exploitation? Well, uh, well, first, before we go there, but the coalition against black exploitation, the term existed long before everything started to become negative. This right. is before coffee. Sure. This is before Foxy Brown, before black exploitation's biggest year, which is 1973. What I think happened is, you know, there's a reflection. Ossie Davis talked about this when he was making contact with Harlem. And no one has seen Harlem on the screen, you know, in that respect, showing it in its all its glory and its love of why you're in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And I think as time went on, as I said, it's a lot more, I mean, not just for black people, but any kind of imagery, women, the more salacious it is, the more people think it will make money. And so I think that what became a combination of, yes, there were, there were black people who were making these movies and were writing them, maybe not necessarily directing them, mm-hmm. but a lot of the producers were white and a lot of some of the directors were white. And I don't think that they were the complete driving force behind it. I think that what happened was what made money, or what initially made money, kind of drove them. See, something like Claudine, which is not technically a blast rotation movie, but is great counter programming, and I, um, I include it in my book because it's my favorite romantic comedy of all time. Mm-hmm. That made money, but, you know, something like, uh, you know, I can't think of a, a good, bad blast rotation movie that, that made money. People were more interested. Let's get an R-rated, you know, hard, violent picture. So I don't really, can't, I can't place blame on one factor. I think it was money. You know, Melvin that people said Hollywood had an Achilles pocketbook. And so whatever they thought made money would come out and bring it out. And again, the more less talent involved brought more of these negative images to it. And then black folks, you know, stopped wanting to see this. I mean, there's a point, you know, I, I saw my neighborhood on the screen when I saw a lot of these movies. So my mm-hmm. neighborhood had drug dealers and pimps and hustlers and religious people and so on. And that was refreshing for a time. But, you know, there had to be some other, um, some variety. And there wasn't. I think the reason why is simply because people thought that sex and violence sold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think we're all kind of to blame. So the audience is to blame in some factor. Hollywood is definitely to blame because they kept making these movies. Yeah. And so they stopped getting, people stopped going to see them. Yeah. Um, I, I want to, Mm, which, which direction do I want to go here? I think I want to go this direction. Um, I'll come to in a moment what destroyed black exploitation uh, films. We'll talk about that maybe as we wrap this conversation. But I'm I, I'm 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 interested and fascinated to hear your take on this question uh, because you went there and I want to follow you. You mentioned Claudine. Claudine is not uh, a, a black exploitation film, but you mentioned it being your favorite. Uh, and I am a huge uh, fan of that film as well. I just saw it a few weeks ago. It was flipping channels, and it was just coming on. I missed the first couple seconds of it. But I love, love, love the movie Claudine. Uh, but the question is, since you referenced it as your favorite, why, as a film critic, 
a black film critic. You love Claudine so much. What is it about Claudine that uh, that <laughs> that that you adore so much? Well, it's again, it's my favorite romantic comedy of all time. So we're going above black petition. We're talking about a, a genre that is primarily white. Right. That's part of the reason. I saw Claudine, I was you know, six years old when I saw this movie. And I saw Black Love on the screen. Mm. And I think I may have been the first time I saw it on the screen. Obviously, I saw it in real life as much as a six-year-old could process Black Love. But to me, Diane Carroll, her character was real. And, and she was a real person that I would have known. And James L. Jones is a garbage man. These people felt real to me. And seeing them fall in love and this whole heartbreaking, this whole bringing this family together, this, uh, you know, it really struck me as a kid. And as an adult, it even struck me even more because there aren't very many films that treat black love with the respect and the realism that that film did. So to me, it's great. And Diane Carroll, they said she was miscast, even though she grew up three blocks from where they shot Claudine. <laughs> um, I think it's just a wonderful film, and I don't think it's enough credit. The guy that made it, John Barry, he was blacklisted um, back during the, uh, uh, you know, the Joe McCarthy era. Mm-hmm. And he was really, really good with making movies about working class people. He seemed to have respect for them. Something you don't really see, in not just for black movies, but in general. And so I just felt like watching Claudine, she kind of reminded me of my mom. Mm-hmm. She was tough. And this love story... I think, again, being the first time I saw Black Love on the screen, it was kind of that thing that kind of spoiled me for everything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not, not only do I love the film, but Gladys Knight killed it on the soundtrack. I mean, the soundtrack. Oh, that's that Curtis Mayfield soundtrack. Oh, man. I, I, I was going there. Curtis Mayfield, Gladys Knight. I mean, they, that, that soundtrack is absolutely amazing. Um, and, um, it, it just, it, it, it makes the film come to life for me. Uh, all this, all the great music on, on that particular, particular soundtrack. L- let me ask you again, I'm, I'm following you here. You mentioned Claudine, uh, and I want to add to that list of great black romantic films, great films about black love, more current, more contemporary, although it's been what 30 years probably now, but I, I, I love, love, I love, love Jones. Oh yeah, me too. I, I love Claudine. I love, I love, I love, Jones, I love, love Jones. But which, 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 which leads me to ask, how you think we are doing in 2024 in this particular genre, in this particular category? That is to say, films about black love beyond Claudine, beyond Love Jones. That's been 30 years. I said, how are we doing in in terms of black love on film these days? Uh, well, tell me where it is. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that answers that question, Don. Yeah. I don't, I feel like you don't, we are not treated as human beings in some respect in some of these movies. We're not capable of being in love and being petty about it or being, you know, falling deeply in love. You're not going to get something like a Claudine today, which is depressing in my opinion, despite that because there were far more black people in behind the camera doing mm-hmm. this type of thing than there was in 1974. So to me, it seems like you should be expecting more of these types of films, not just like Claudine or Love Jones, but just films that have romantic. There's there's something called Rye Lane. It was an English film that came out last year that's really, really good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a lot of fun. It's not a stuffy romantic movie at all. It's very, very loose and has a kind of Love Jones feel to it. They have these kind of, you know, I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to say bougie, but these types of black characters who relate to each other in such a fascinating way. And it's so funny because it feels so real. You know, Black Joy is so absent from the screen a lot of times. 
people don't think we have a sense of humor. We're just beaten down. It's not even gallows humor you know, that the downtrodden normally has in real life. We see that. So I, I feel that there is a big hole missing in, in our cinema for something like that. Let me circle back in our remaining moments here. Um, now that we've uh, uh, sounded off on our, our favorite romantic <laughs> films about black love, Claudine and Love Jones, uh, back to black exploitation. Uh, your book, Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatra: A History of Black Exploitation Cinema. In the two minutes I have left, tell me what ultimately destroyed black exploitation. Now here's a funny thing. When I started writing this book, I had a completely different idea. I had a theory. And a lot of times when you write, write something, the theory gets tested and either removed or um, changed. And I always thought that it was television, you know, Boots was on, black, more black people were on television as time went on. It's just the time went on. I talk about in the book what's happening every year outside of black exploitation. We have Sanford and Son, we have the Jeffersons, we have Good Times, we have Tenafly, we have the Shaft series on TV, we have Roots. We have all these things that you can stay your butt home and watch because there was no VHS back then. And so you had to be home to watch it or you missed it probably forever. Yeah. And that got people to stay home. Plus, television was free. Mm-hmm. And then I thought Jaws and, and Star Wars, these blockbuster movies that came out through the tail end of Black Vacation was what ruined it. And Elvis Mitchell made a film or a documentary called Is That Black Enough For You yep. in 2022. I interviewed Elvis and we talked about this and we kind of had an argument about it. He said it was the Wiz that destroyed black exploitation mm. because the Wiz cost a lot of money. And once again, as soon as black things don't make any money, we're out. Yeah. We don't get another shot. Yeah. And I started to bend my kind of theory toward that in a way, but I still think that it was a combination of those things. Mm. But, as, but black stuff is cyclical. So pe- black people disappeared from movies after the Wiz. Yeah. Think about it. Unless you're Richard Pryor, you weren't in the movie. And then, oh, and then uh, Eddie Murphy shows up, but he wasn't technically making movies that were specifically black until, until you know, coming to America. Yeah. So, and then you have Spike Lee showing up in the 80s to do this. But I think what black, killed black exploitation was the combination of The Wiz being a flop and also the black folks are expanding their kind of ideas of what, going to the movies, see bigger movies. Mm-hmm. Hollywood decided we don't need black people in the movies to get black people to go, which is something they should have known before nope. black exploitation. Nope. Makes but sense. I think that's kind of what I think it's kind of what did it in. Nope, that, that makes but sense. But it's not dead. No, it ain't dead. It's come back. No, <laughs> it's come back. And you got Shaft remakes. You got Superfly. You got uh, the, the the movie Tiana Paris. Um, they clone Tyrone, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic sure. kind of mixture of black exploitation and horror. So and you have Black Dynamite. You have the stuff Michael J. White is doing. No, it ain't. It's not gone away. No, it ain't dead. Um, it ain't dead at all. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, his book is called Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatra: A History of Black Exploitation Cinema. He is film critic Odie Henderson. Odie, good to have you on, man. We'll do it again. All the best to you, sir. Uh, thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. More of Tammy Smiley when we come forward.